Good morning, my name's Chris, um, and again, it's a privilege to be here preaching to you here in Newtobridge. Um, we're going through Exodus in our series, um, and it'd be good if those chapters that we'd read, the series about the, the chapters about the plagues, it'd be good if you could have those open. It's a big chunk, um, I won't lie, and there'll be a bit of page flicking, so, so please do bear with me. I'll try and do most of the reading myself, but um, there will be some page turning. Sometimes things that people do leave, leave lasting impressions. For me, one of the most lasting impressions of my life was the old Wembley Stadium in October 1999. I was in university. I'm not a football aficionado by any stretch of the imagination, but friends of mine have got Champions League tickets to see um, Arsenal versus Barcelona. Um, and we were sitting behind the goal. Arsenal were in front of us. And Barcelona were far away on the pitch. Now, just before every football game, the players are all out there and they're practicing. They're passing to each other. They're shooting at the goal. Um, And I must admit, amongst the fans that were there, there was an element of nervousness. Because you could tell who the better team was. You could see Arsenal. You could see Barcelona. And Barcelona were better. Everything they did was better. It was almost as if Barcelona were saying to all of us, we are Barcelona. We're the best team in the world. No one can compete with us. When the match started, it wasn't long before those fears my friends had were realised. Fifteen minutes in, Barcelona got a penalty. They deserved it. They were playing far better. And the penalty was the best penalty I've ever seen. A man called Rivaldo, a Brazilian player, You might remember him if you're my age. He stepped up and he didn't hit the back of the net. He hit the side of the net. He curled it at speed into the side netting. Couldn't be saved. Perfect penalty. I was watching it again on YouTube this week. Still amazing as it is now. You can see this left an impression on me. Two minutes later, sorry, one minute later, kick off again. Barcelona get the ball, and a man called Luis Enrique breaks down the right. You can still see him running towards me. He was fast, he was dynamic, he was powerful. He stepped inside, 2-0. 16 minutes in, and it's already 2-0. I'll tell that story many times, because it left a lasting impression on me. Even when I'm an an old man, you'll hear me rattling off the same story. Because I was there, I saw it with my own eyes. We are Barcelona. We are the best team in the world. We want you to remember that. And it's exactly the same in our section in the Bible we've read today, in this very famous section of where the Lord plagues Egypt. I mean, movies have been made about it with Charlton Heston, or a bit more recently, The the Prince of Egypt. I remember watching that, um, a magnificent cartoon. I recommend you watch it. But for everything that happens in this series of the plagues, there is a clear message that we need to grasp. There is purpose to it all. And the purpose is mentioned time and time again. And it's a message for the people of Israel at that time. It's a message for the Egyptians. It's a message to all of us, for all people who have lived at any time. And it's this. It's what the Lord says. I am the Lord. There is none like me in all the earth. There is, I am the Lord. There is none like me in all of the earth. That's what these plagues are going to teach us. Let's have a look. We'll say, well, where are we in the story? We'll just recap. Well, the Lord has promised to deliver his people, to bring them to himself. Remember, as Chris said at the start, he is 
the ruler who rescues for a relationship. Well, he's promised to do that to his people by mighty acts of judgment in Egypt. To bring his people out for himself. And he's chosen to do that through this man, Moses. A man of 80 years old. A man, by his own admission, is unconfident, faltering. A man who needs a sidekick in the form of his brother, Aaron. We pick up the story in chapter 7, in verse 8, in Pharaoh's court. It's almost like what I would describe to you in the football game. It's the pre-kickoff, before the plagues really kind of get going. It's an inkling of what's to come. And Pharaoh and his courtiers would have good reason to be nervous about the things to come. Just look at the, just look at the text. It's a battle of staffs, or a battle of snakes, you might say. You get this dramatic demonstration of the magician's um, staffs fighting with Moses' staff. But really, it's a battle between the gods of Egypt versus the Lord. And there's only one winner. It would have been quite a frightening thing to behold as Moses' staff gobbles up all the other staffs. The gods of Egypt cannot stand before the Lord. No, they're consumed, literally eaten by his judgment. There's a clear message here. There's a clear message the Lord is saying. And it's the same. I am the Lord. There is none like me in all the earth. None like me. And then we get into the plagues proper. This famous series of ten plagues. And in all the narrative of the ten plagues, there is a common structure to what happens. It's not just randomly put together. It's the same kind of story. Slight variations, but the story is there to show the Lord's power, his sovereignty. And what I mean by that is his utter control over everything. Let's just have a look at that in some detail in the first plague, and I will read it to you. See, the first thing we get... The Lord does. He commands Pharaoh. Just have a look at verse 14 in chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take the staff in your hand that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go, that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. The Lord gives a command. Secondly, there is a warning and a declaration by the Lord. Have a look at verse 17. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. And then what happens? Well, the Lord always keeps his word. He's trustworthy and he's powerful to do it. Look at verse 19. The execution of the plague. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt. Over the streams, the canals, over the ponds, the reservoirs, everything. And they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt. Even in vessels of wood and stone. Verse 20. 
Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, and he struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelt so bad the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. So the plague happens. And then what comes next? Well, you get Pharaoh's response. Just have a look at verse 22. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and he went into his palace. And he did not even take this to heart. And the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. You see Pharaoh's response. That's the last thing in the pattern. And in all of the plagues, you get this again and again and again. Sometimes Pharaoh decides to try and bargain with the Lord. But ultimately, his heart is always hardened and he does not let the people go. And so then what happens? Well, we go back to the beginning of this cycle. There's an escalation Another plague comes. The next plague that comes in this series is the frogs. But in all of these plagues, they point to the Lord's power and his control, his sovereignty. You see, the Lord, as these plagues go on, he escalates, he shows more of his power over all of his creation, everything that he has made. Some of these plagues are described as the worst things that had ever happened to Egypt since it became a nation. And this is not climate change. This is not natural causes. No, the plagues are unmistakably supernatural. They're caused by the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And what's more, if you were an Egyptian, you would know when you were there that these plagues were being directed at the gods that you worshipped. You see, the Egyptians had gods for everything. God for the Nile, God for the dust of the earth, God for the sky, God for the sun. Even Pharaoh himself was considered a living God. And all of these plagues that the Lord is doing are directed at these false gods. And why? Well, the message is the same. So that you would know, God says, that I am the Lord. There is none like me. None like me in all the earth. Just have a look at these plagues in detail. I'll just quickly go through them to show how frightening and awesome they are. In chapter 7, blood in the river, over the reservoirs, over all the things that carry water. Just imagine how terrible that must have been. You can't drink. And this plague lasted seven days. Now, I don't know about you, but if you don't drink water for seven days, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. The Egyptians had to dig along the Nile. They had to get their spades out and try and get water, dig new bits, new trenches to try and get water. After that, we get frogs come up from the river. Frogs all over the land. When you say frogs are not so bad, I'm talking about frogs that are everywhere in your houses, in your food, in your beds. You won't be able to sleep because of the croaking. Not very nice. And then those frogs die, and they stink. The whole land is filled. 
the dead bodies of frogs. It doesn't get bad enough. Think what comes, comes next. The Lord commands the dust of the land to turn into gnats. Again, you think, you know, a few gnats by the river down Uta Bridge. Not too bad. No. I'm talking proper gnats. I'm talking about so many gnats that when they bite your arms and your legs, your legs will swell up for the bites. The itching, the uncomfortableness. Not nice. After that, we get flies. A swarm of flies that's never been seen before, everywhere in the land. They're described as corrupting the land. Now, I don't know what that means, but flies are not very clean. I imagine they would have had a field day with all the dead frogs that were still there. So you've got a land full of flies and probably lots of maggots as well. I'm sorry this is stomach churning, but this is, this is reality of, of what was happening. After that, all the livestock is killed. Now, livestock in the ancient world wasn't just you know, cows and sheep. This was your means of having milk, of having food. These are beasts of burden. They're things that would be transporting loads and doing work for you. But there is a plague on them. Egypt, the most powerful nation on the planet at that time, economy just smashed. Frightening. And more. Moses is commanded to take dust from a kiln and to throw it up into heaven. And it becomes boils on all of the people. Painful, itching boils. You won't be able to sleep with that. You won't be able to work with that. And more, as Pharaoh is more stubborn and doesn't let the people go, you get the worst hailstorm that's ever been seen in the land of Egypt. Hail mixed with fire. We had a bad hailstorm in um, Sheffield over the last couple of weeks. I was, stayed up and watched it. But this hail was dangerous. It's hail that would destroy animals and people and foliage if you were left out in it. So any food that you did have left is now being damaged by the hail. And what comes next? Will you get a swarm of locusts that has never been seen in Egypt and they destroy, they eat all the foliage that's been left I have some locusts here. You can see them afterwards. Um, I was surprised. I've never seen them. I thought, you know, if I put some food in, they'll, you know, might take their time. No, they're voracious. They've eaten everything I've given them this morning. Just imagine a hundred billion of these locusts on your land, eating all the, the plants again in your house, in your home. Frightening. No light and there's no grain left. You can't make bread. Plague number nine. Darkness. Darkness that can be felt. I've been away to the country sometimes. Sometimes I find when I sleep in another bed, especially when there's no light, that you wake up because it's completely pitch black. There's a sense of panic. Where's the light? Where's the light? Where's the light? I see some people down there, little wry smiles on their face. Maybe they experience that as well. But it's not very nice. It is a darkness that can be felt. 
Your eyes are looking for that shard of light because pure darkness is frightening. And this darkness lasts three days. It's not an eclipse. It's something supernatural. Something only the Lord can do. And then finally, the warning of the most terrible plague of all. The terrible plague that will strike the first of your strength, your firstborn sons, your heirs, the people who would look after you in your old age. I'm a firstborn son. That plague will be targeted at me. Frightening. These plagues are frightening. The plagues that come into your home, they they cause you to itch, they ruin your land, they take your food, they can't be avoided. And they're not just accidents, they're supernatural. They're coming, coming from the Lord. They're directed by the Lord, controlled by the Lord, by his servant Moses. And you see here in these accounts of the plagues that they are completely under God's power. It's the Lord who determines when the plagues are going to come. It's the Lord who determines when the plagues are going to go away. There's an almost, almost comical account in, in chapter 8 where the frogs come up on the, on the land and Pharaoh, he, he starts to beg. He says, no, Moses, please, tell the Lord, take the frogs away from the land. And Moses says to him, you know, I leave you the honour of setting the time for, for, for me to pray for you. I will tell you the time, Terry. Just, just give me the time. I will pray for you that time and the frogs will go. So you know that it's from the Lord. It's the Lord who determines the time of these plagues. And it's the Lord who also determines the geography of these plagues, the extent. We saw in our reading, the Lord makes a distinction between the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, a bit in the north where the Israelites were. The plagues don't touch that area. They don't touch there at all. The Lord is sovereign over these. He makes a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. And why? It's the same message. So that you may know, I am the Lord. There is none like me in all the earth. There is none like me in all the earth. This message is repeated again and again and again in our passage. In our passage. If you don't believe me, I'll read some of the bits out to you. In chapter 7, the plague of blood is given and God gives the reason. In this you will know that I am the Lord. The plague of frogs, chapter 8. The plague is given in order that you will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. With the flies, the reason given is in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of all the earth. With the hail. I will send all my plagues on you, God says to Pharaoh, so that you will know that there is none like me in all the earth. With the locusts, what does God say? I'm doing this so that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. That's the purpose in all these plagues, that the Lord would be known. Just have a look at me, just in the account, how as these plagues go on, the Lord is lifted up and elevated 
but Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt are crushed. You see in our account the magicians, they're the representatives of the gods of Egypt. They're the priests, they're the ones who would, you know, be in the temples and doing the prayers and they had their own secret magic arts. They're the ones whose staffs were devoured by Moses' staff. You see in our account, in the plague of the blood and the frogs, the magicians can replicate them a little bit by their secret arts. Just a little bit. But by the third plague, the plague of gnats, they can't do it. And they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We cannot touch this. We can't do this. And by the plague of boils, those same magicians in chapter 9, they cannot even stand before Pharaoh. The Lord and his power has been shown to be far greater than the false gods of Egypt. Look at Pharaoh himself in our accounts. Pharaoh was supposed to be a supposed God, a living God, divine. This is the same proud Pharaoh who said, I do not know the Lord, neither will I let his people go. And he goes from being this proud, stubborn man. In our first plague, he's disinterested, he just goes to his palace. By the third plague, second plague of the frogs actually, forgive me, He's bargaining with Moses already. Take them away. Pray to the Lord Moses. Take the frogs away. By chapter 10, what we read, Pharaoh is saying, I have sinned against the Lord and you. This man cannot stand against the Lord. He's not a God. Only the Lord is God. And you see in the passage again and again this pattern of Pharaoh's heart being hardened just as the Lord had said it would happen. It's mentioned several times and it's mentioned in different ways. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart himself. And other times that the Lord hardened it. It's a difficult part of the passage, I must admit. But all throughout the Bible, human responsibility is taught, as is God's utter sovereignty and power. You see, Pharaoh is responsible for his choices. He's responsible for his sin. After all these plagues and the the marvellousness of them, to to harden your heart against the Lord would be utter folly, but he does do that. He sins. But equally taught is that the heart of Pharaoh The course of his life, the course of his decisions is directed by the Lord himself. For the Lord's purposes, for the Lord's glory, for the Lord's power. You say, well, why is is the Lord doing this? Why is he hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, the Lord tells Pharaoh straight. Look at chapter 9. The Lord says this to Pharaoh. For by now... I could have stretched out my hand against you, Pharaoh, and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I may show my power and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Even an unwilling Pharaoh serves God in his own way. 
so that you may know I am the Lord, God says, and there is none like me in all the earth, so that you may know I am the Lord and there is none like me in all the earth. Now God's judgments and his deeds are mighty. We've seen that. But I want to show you even today, even these plagues, I want to show you also something of the Lord's mercy. You say to me, well, how can... It doesn't sound very merciful, Chris. But just have a look. Now, I admit having bugs crawling all over you and frogs and having your water turn to blood is uncomfortable. I'm not going to deny that. It is, it is a judgment. But you see, the Lord always leaves a way open. A shard of mercy. Even in the first plague, the Egyptians can still dig around the Nile to get water. The plague is not absolute against them. Even in the, fir- the first plague where human life is seriously jeopardized, in the plague of the hail that we read about, in verse 19, the Lord says to Pharaoh, look, tell your people, tell your people, get them in from the outside. Get your livestock in, get your servants in. Because if you don't get them in, they'll be destroyed. The Lord's mercy is there. Even after this hail destroys the foliage, you can see in verse 31, I won't read it, but some of the foliage is left. They're not utterly bereft of food. And whenever Pharaoh bargains with the Lord through Moses, whenever a Pharaoh says to Moses, look, plead with the Lord for me, take the plague away. Well, the Lord knows that Pharaoh's not going to change his mind. But he does stay his hand. The frogs are taken away. The locusts, all billions of them are swept into the Red Sea. The Lord shows mercy. He doesn't rouse all his judgment up. He could do that and he'd be right to do so, but he doesn't. And look at the mercy shown to God's people in the land of Goshen. There's nothing about his people that is any different from the Egyptians by themselves. There's no reason why he should show them favour, but because of God's promise and his free grace. And he protects them. He stops the plague from going on that area, and he even gives them a way to survive this last terrible plague directed against the firstborn. God's testimony, he says, not even a dog will bark against my people. He's merciful. Even in his judgment, he is merciful. And why? Well, it's the same reason. So that you may know I am the Lord. There is none like me in all the earth. I say to us here today, brothers and sisters, this is our God. This is our God. He is the Lord. These mighty acts that he has done, it should be on our lips, it should be in our hearts, should be in our minds. They're part of our heritage as God's people. These mighty acts of redemption, where Israel's redeemed from Egypt, should be on our mouths. But I would argue that us here today are even more privileged than these people in Israel. We have even more mighty acts of the Lord to tell people about. You see, All these plagues and judgments, 
they point to one thing, ultimately, and that's the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one to whom all the scriptures point to. Jesus is a descendant of this people of Israel who came out of Egypt. Jesus is one who is fully God and fully man. He's Christ the Lord. And he's the one who's come to show us what God is like. And it's the same message. He's come to show us that he is the Lord. And there is none like him in all the earth. There's no one like Jesus. Just like Moses came before Pharaoh, Jesus came when he came to this earth and he stood before the real Pharaoh, the real one who keeps God's people bound in slavery and sin and death. Jesus came and stood before Satan and he said the same thing to him, let my people go so that they can go and worship my father. And Jesus saved his people. He saved them powerfully and sovereignly. How did he do this? Well, he died for his people on the the cross. He died for their sins. And then he was raised from the dead. In Colossians chapter 2, it says this about Jesus dying. It says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. That's the devil. Jesus disarmed him. He disarmed the powers and authorities. It says here that Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, Jesus came and he plagued Satan's kingdom. Just like Pharaoh's kingdom was plagued. He ruined his kingdom and he led a people out of that kingdom. And that is you and that is me. And that was public. It's something that wasn't done in a corner. Jesus defeated Satan on that cross 2,000 years ago and he set God's people free. Praise him for that. But there's more. On that cross, Jesus defeated our sin. The sin that we have against God. Jesus defeated that sin. It says here in Colossians, the verse before, Jesus cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. That's our sin, which stood against us and and it condemned us. And he's taken it away. Why? Because it was nailed to the cross. And Jesus defeated death as well. The death we all must face because of our sin. A prophecy was given in Isaiah in in chapter 25 and it says, something about what Jesus was going to do. It says, on this mountain, that's Jerusalem, he will swallow up the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. That's what Jesus did. He defeated death by dying for our sins and rising again. You see, on the cross, the Lord did raise up his full judgment, all his plagues, everything that we deserve, and he laid them on his own son. God did not show mercy to his son. He didn't spare him. But by dying on this cross, by dying a plagued death, by dying a God-forsaken death, Jesus defeated Satan, our sin, and death. And why? It's the same message. So we would know that he is the Lord and there is none like him in all the earth.
He is the Lord. There is no one as powerful. There is no one as sovereign. There was no one as glorious. No one as merciful. There is no one else. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who is like you, Lord? I want to say to you here today, if you're a Christian, let this be on your, in your heart, on your mind, and on your lips. Let God's praise be on your lips. Let it be in the songs you sing and in the prayers that you pray. Be reminding yourselves every day of this good news and other people. Mothers and fathers, be speaking it to your kids in the house. Grandparents, when you speak it to your grandchildren. Uncles and aunts, when you speak to your nieces and nephews. If you're at the school gate chatting with other people. If you're at work with colleagues. If you're just having a coffee from Joni's or a pint down at the Cock Inn, be talking about this. If you're on your sick bed at home, you can't come here today. If you're leaning on your walking frame, if you're speaking to your relatives, your caregiver, let this testimony be in your heart. Let it be in your lips. Let it be in your mind. He is the Lord. There is none like him in all the earth. You, Lord, you saved me. You're the covenant-keeping God who saved me, a wretch like me. You, Lord, sent your son to redeem us. There is none like you, Lord. None like you in all the earth. I was enslaved. I was a rebel. I was a willing slave to Satan. But you sent your son to save someone like me. You redeemed me from my cruel slave master. You took me to yourself. Lord, you softened my heart, my hard heart, by your spirit. You softened it. You brought me to trust in your son. Lord, you sent your son to make an end of my sins, to defeat the death I deserve. Your loved Lord is stronger than death. By your son's resurrection, you've defeated it forever. I say to you here, Christian, because of the Lord Jesus, we don't need to fear Satan. We don't need to fear the judgment due our sins. And we don't even need to fear death itself. Be it by torture of persecution or dying peaceably in our sleep. Jesus has conquered all of these. We need not be afraid. He is the Lord. There is none like him in all the earth. Lastly, I speak to you here today, if you don't know the Lord, and I say to you, don't be like Pharaoh in our story. Don't harden your heart stubbornly. You've heard the Lord's voice today. You've heard his word. Don't harden your heart. Yield yourselves to Jesus. Trust him. Surrender to him. Crown him as your king and your saviour. And do say you solemnly, if you don't do that, you'll end up just as Pharaoh will do in a couple of chapters in our story. Under God's judgment forever. An eternal judgment. A place of plague and of fire and of death. A plague without possibility. A place of, without possibility of salvation. You don't want to go there. Whatever you've done, you've been the greatest sinner in the world. If you've been one of Satan's magicians or cupbearers, the Lord has sent his son to die for people like you. For the wicked, for the impious, the ungodly. That's me. He's died for people like me and he's died for people like you. You ask any Christian and they'll say, the Lord can save the proudest, the hardest, 
the most wicked of people. Don't harden yourself against the Lord. No one has ever done that and succeeded. And you won't either. I say to you today, trust Jesus and what he's done for you. He's come to save people like you and me. And if you've done that today, come and celebrate with us in Coronation Park later. We will celebrate your new life with us together. And the Lord himself will celebrate with us. He'll be the life of that party. He is the Lord. There is none like him in all the earth. He is the Lord. There is none like him in all the earth. Amen.